Church, open your Bibles. We are going to be back in the book of Nehemiah today, chapter 5. I want to thank my brother Daniel Schofield for preaching last week. And he was really in the heart of what Nehemiah is most known for. Nehemiah is known for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after the exiles came back from captivity in Babylon and Persia. And if you recall, Daniel last week in his passage was reminding us that not only did they have the job of building, but also the job of defending themselves because there were individuals who were attacking them. And so if you look actually at the logo for our whole series, it has the shovel and the sword that are crossed. And that's purposeful because, again, they had this job of not just building, but also defending at the same time that that was going on. So that was last week. This week, our passage takes a little turn. Because last week, we had enemies. You remember enemies like Sanballat and Tobiah? And they did not want the Jews to reestablish Jerusalem again as a city. And so they were opposing them. Those guys are going to show up again next week. Just a little hint. But this week, we have not just external pressures that the people of God are facing, but now internal pressures. And so the focus is shifting this week, and we're going to find out that there are some internal fractures or internal pressures that the people of God are facing, and we're going to learn about that now. Ephesians, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, here's the way that it is written. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said... With our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. I have held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, "We we will restore them And require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do this as they had promised. 
I also shook out the fold of my garments and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Back after 9-11, 2011, America began uh, two wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. It was just two months after the first uh, troops had gone into Iraq that there were three soldiers, special forces, that were killed. And they were killed by uh, a B-52 bomber that sent a precision-guided 2,000-pound bomb onto them. This is the way it happened. The soldiers were fighting, had an enemy nearby, and so they called in this precision airstrike. One of the men held the GPS unit, which was giving the coordinates to the bomber that was on its way in for the final run as it was getting ready to release its payload. It was a little low on batteries, and so while they were waiting for the bomber to arrive, he took the batteries out and plugged new batteries into the GPS, not knowing that as he did so, the coordinates changed, not from the enemy's position, but when the GPS rebooted, to his own position. And so the 2,000-pound precision-guided GPS bomb came down on three American soldiers released by their own B-52 bomber. That, in military terms, is called friendly fire. And friendly fire today in wars is the same as it's been for a long time. We had friendly fire back all the way to the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, both world wars, and every war. And maybe it's even become a little easier because it's a push-button war now. You launch something that goes hundreds of miles away before it actually releases on somebody that you really can't see. And so friendly fire is very, very common in war today. Our story today is about friendly fire. It's not the kind that I just talked about where bullets are released or bombs are released, but it's problems faced brother to brother. It's the fractures that a community feels when friendly fire is released upon each other. The passage today is all about how Nehemiah addressed friendly fire. And by friendly fire, I mean really internal divisions. There are fractures that have happened because of our actions against each other within a family, within a church. And when we talk about this, we say, well, you know what? That's also happening today around us. Perhaps you have somebody that's inside the camp, as it were, that is causing the problems for you. And you are facing those internal divisions within your own family or within your own church family somehow or maybe within the broader church community. And that would not be uncommon. In fact, that's very commonplace. I will tell you this. 
There is a reason why the kiss of Judas was so hurtful and disheartening. Because Judas was one who'd spent three years with Jesus. And those kinds of things are not supposed to happen when somebody is so close to you that you feel the pain and the stab, as it were, of of what they have done. The, The pain that they inflict seems to be so much greater than even the outside forces. And I will tell you this, the deepest pain I have felt in life has come from those that are often the closest to me. Because that is something, again, that friendly fire is something that causes great pain for all of us and challenges in our lives. So how does Nehemiah deal with friendly fire? How does he deal with the internal struggles, the internal divisions that can cause problems in unity within the the, the family of God as well as your, your own family? How does he deal with that? And how should we deal with that? Well, Nehemiah today in this passage gives us a roadmap for how he dealt with it and how we might also deal with it. And so let's pick up. I've got four steps that Nehemiah took that we might take if we have those issues that are happening within our own inside family or inside community. And here's what he did. Step number one, he listened carefully. Nehemiah listened carefully in order to make sure he understood the problems and he understood the concerns within the community. Let's back up for just a second. Let's remind ourselves again where we are. Nehemiah and the people have just finished the walls. Next week, we're going to deal with the gates within the walls, but they've mostly finished the walls and they're breathing a great sigh of relief. It's like, whoa, 52 days. That was a lot of hard work, but here we are. This feels so good. And I'm telling you this, they felt like at this point, Nehemiah is a pretty key leader. He's a good leader and they've built a level of trust with him. And so they say, Nehemiah, there's some things we want to bring to your attention. We haven't brought them to your attention yet, but they've been festering in the background. There's a problem that's been brewing and we want to bring that to your attention. And so here's what Nehemiah does. He listens carefully and he records for us today the exact quotes that people are telling him. This is how carefully he is listening. He's recording for us and saying, this is what I heard them say. And so in order to make sure we understand the problem, let's look at their quotes in order to make sure we understand the depth of the problem. All right? Here's the one that is the first quote. It's from what the group I'm going to call the workers. And they say, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Uh, These more than likely are not just workers, but they're day laborers. So they rely upon the money that they get every day in order to be able to go to the market and buy something for their families. And this is what they're telling us is, we're out of grain. We, we do not have food to eat, and our families are big. We're on the edge of starvation. And so again, the, the, the problem is, again, there's probably something. We know that there's a famine that's going to come out in just a, a little bit. There's a famine that's hit the land, probably not enough rain. And so they've got a, a short supply of wheat for that year or barley and so that there's a problem and and then we're you know there's just not enough grain for us exacerbating that what have they been doing the last 52 days they've been working on the wall and so this is harvest time for wheat at this moment that this is being written and so they probably haven't had time in the fields maybe that's also contributed to a lack of the harvest and a lack of grain because they've been busy taking care of the city and so they're telling us, we've, we've got problems. We're not feeding our families, and this is, this is an issue. The next group of people are those who what I'm going to call the landowners, and this is the thing that they say. They say, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And so they're saying, 
we've got a problem. We, we're barely making it, but we're making it because we are mortgaging our land or our vineyards in order to get the money to buy grain. So they're a step ahead of the individuals who are the workers because at least they have some collateral to put up. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, I'm giving my land as a uh, hedge against the money. If I don't pay you back, then you get my land. And so they're mortgaging, as it were. They're using their possessions as collateral. And they've got a step ahead again of the workers, but they're saying, we're about ready to lose it all. And, you know, to lose, to lose everything as a country at this tender moment, I mean, how can this be? There's one more group of people that I want you to see, and uh, maybe they face the most dire decision of all because they're being forced to sell their children. It says, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards, and so some people are making this grueling decision to say, we're going to sell a child into slavery for another month or another two months for the rest of our family to eat. And we're like, man, that just sounds so harsh. It sounds so barbaric. And wow, we're glad that was just the ancient world. Not so quick. I don't know if you knew it or not, but there is a very big preponderance today of human slavery or what might be called human trafficking. And I want to give you a couple statistics here. First of all, um, what would you do with $90? You know, $90 represents maybe a new tech device of some kind or a piece of home fitness equipment. Well, what if it represented a life? Because $90 is the average price that it costs for a slave being traded around the world today. Somebody being offered in human trafficking. To give you some perspective, 1860, uh, the price of a slave, rather the number of slaves in the world was 25 million, and today the number of slaves in the world is 45 million. The cost of a slave, again, this is going to be the price at the time, so obviously some inflation is going to make it much higher, but the cost of a slave back then was $134, and today, again, the average price just 90. Why has it drop so much? Well, because it's all kind of gone underground, as it were. There's no country that's saying it's legal to do human trafficking, but somehow it's still being done around the world. Here's an interesting statistic about this. The average time of a slave in captivity is six years, at which time they either escape, they are freed, or they die. So six years, the average time that a slave is enslaved around the world today. So you see that the problem it existed then and it potentially exists now. And the problem was that they faced a great tragedy. They were not eating. They were about ready to lose everything they had and they were forced into this uh, grueling of all decisions of potentially even giving a, a child up into slavery just to make ends meet. So you say, well, pastor, I, I mean, I understand all that, but where's the friendly fire? Where's the brother on brother here? Well, I'm glad you asked that because in verse 7, Nehemiah brings up a group of people that he says are the nub of the problem. And he calls them the nobles and the officials. The nobles and the officials. And those are the group of people that are the true power brokers. Those are the group of people that really own everything. And those are the group of people who said, I know there's a tragedy in the land today, but I'd be happy to give you a payday loan only at 50% interest. And so they're the ones that are 
making some real money during this time, but they're doing that on the backs of individuals who are really in dire straits. And this is what it says, verse 6, that the way that Nehemiah processes this whole thing. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words, and I took counsel with myself. I kind of find that interesting. A little phrase, I took counsel with myself. I think what he's saying here is, man, I felt that all the way down to my toenails, and I really thought through, what does this mean, and what is an appropriate response to this Here's what I want to remind you. Before we can do anything, if you've got some struggles within community, before we can do anything, you better find out what's truly going on. You better listen very carefully. You better ask a lot of questions. And that takes a lot of time to understand what's truly going on and who's really doing what against who. That takes time to unpack. But that's a necessary step. You'll never resolve the problem without doing that first. All right. Next, he addresses the wrongdoing. Verse 7, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Nehemiah is going to get to the root of the problem, and he's going to publicly bring charges against the nobles and the officials. And so he's going to, again, address what is wrong. Now, before we hear what he does and the way that he approaches that, I want to remind you that uh, most of us would be a little bit slow to do that. And, And here's why. Because the group of people that he's getting ready to go to are the people with power. They're the people that are saying, hey, dude, we pay your paycheck. Dude, we, you, you, we have the power to take you out. You know that, right? I mean, we, we control the commerce in this area. We control all everything. Anything's done. Any construction being done, we're controlling it. You are better not step out of line. And so there's a level of intimidation. And for many of us, that level of intimidation makes us take a stutter step and we're like, Whew, I don't know if I want to take that step or not. Gary Hagan is the former president of the International Justice Mission. And he's traveled the world and he's seen all kinds of police forces and judicial systems. And he's in the process, usually at, at the time in which he was president, of freeing people from human trafficking all around the world. So he saw a lot of people that were in power. And he says there's a rule that exists around the world, and it also exists within systems around us. He calls it the 1570-15 rule. And here's what he says. He says 15% of the people in power wake up every day, and they literally want to use their position for their own selfish gains. And they will do whatever it takes in order to make sure that they're getting theirs, and they don't care if it corrupts the system. 15% of the people wake up every day and say, regardless of what happens, I am going to use my position in order to try to do good, to try to benefit the people and benefit the larger society here. So you got 15% set on nefarious purposes, 15% on always altruistic and good purposes, and you got 70% in the middle. And what are the 70% doing? They're saying, where is the wind blowing? Which side is going to win? And I'm probably going to put my chips on where I think it's going to win because I don't want to face the aftermath or the blowback of being on the wrong side. Nehemiah is obviously the guy that's set on saying, I'm going to do what's right no matter what. He's a part of the 15% that's saying, we've got to address what's really going on here. And so he marches forward and he's saying, I'm going to take some action here. 
And one of the things he does is he calls a public assembly in verse 7. He is calling together everybody involved, all the people that are getting squashed, all the people that are just really having problems, along with the power brokers, and he's saying, we're going to talk about this together. And he calls the wealthy together in order to to tell them, this is the effect that you are having upon the individuals around you. And he brings two charges, and he also brings one axiom, or one thing that they need to remember. So let's go through the charges real quickly and the axiom that he wants them to hear. The first problem is that they are exacting interest, or they're charging interest. And again, is, is, is that necessarily always a problem? No. But in this instance, it was, and here's why. It was a violation against the law in Exodus. And so here's the passage in Exodus. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. And so, again, this is a dire situation. And in the law, it says, if you're facing a dire situation and the poor among you is not, you know, in this case, they're not eating, don't march in and then charge interest. Give them what they need. Get the promise of a payback but be compassionate in the midst of that. And they were failing at that. Again, I want to back up here. Is charging interest always a wrong thing? No. that's That's not what's here in the passage, and that's not what I'm trying to say today. But in this instance, it was. And in this instance, it was a violation of God's principles for his people, especially when they were treating one another. And there'll be times at which you may need to help somebody in this body. You may give them an outright gift, or you may actually loan them some money. It would probably be wise if you'd say, hey, let me understand the situation. There'd be a possibility I won't charge any interest on this. Number two, and perhaps the issue that was the bigger issue, was that there were those that were forcing people to sell their children into slavery. And by the way, it was, it was strange because here's what was happening. There was one group of people that said, oh, this is a a tragedy. The fact that anybody that's of of Jewish descent would be sold to another nation as a slave, that's just a tragedy. We, We can't have that happen. And so they would buy those slaves back. Individuals within the nobility and the power structure were selling those same people back into slavery, and there was this cycle of some making money and some spending money in order to get them back. And he says, this is a vicious cycle. What are you doing? And he even hearkens this, he says, he uses a word, I heard their outcry, same word that's used in the outcry of the people when they were in slavery in Egypt. And so he's saying, you're acting like a pharaoh here to the people that you should be caring for as your brother. And in fact, that's the word that he uses very repeatedly here. It's one word and he uses repeatedly, again and again and again, brother. And he's saying, you're not treating your, your friends here as your brother under God. And that's what should be motivating you right now is you should be wanting your fellow Jews to prosper, all of them, and you should have more compassion on your family of God than you do upon making another buck. You need to let compassion reign over profit. And Nehemiah is, again, addressing that wrongdoing, and he's addressing the wrongdoers, and that's tough business. It's never been easy. But you must do that with the empowerment of God or otherwise things will never get reconciled. There'll never be a true unity without addressing what has gone wrong. Third, Nehemiah created solutions. And by this, I mean meaningful solutions. And it's going to be costly to one group of people. And you can imagine who it is. 
The nobles and the officials are going to be ones that are going to pay a price here for what they have done, and they're going to have to take some actions for that. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and a percentage of the money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And so he's saying, you've got to act immediately to reconcile this situation. I know you haven't taken their land, but you have their land on pledge. Give that up. Give that pledge back to them. I know that you've been saying you want a percentage of either money or a percentage of oil or grain. You're going to keep that on store in case they can't pay back the loan. Give that back. So you're going to have to take some steps here that are costly steps, but that's what's needed in order to repair the community. And it's human nature, of course, that... (laughs) We, we, we may talk a good game, but then we don't follow through on it. And so Nehemiah is smart about that. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make sure that we have a process here to follow through on that. Because he knew people would go home and they'd say, I know I promised that, but you know what? This is my money. I'm going to do with my money what I want to do with my money. And so he's going to create a scenario here, a situation here, where it's going to be a a, a step forward, a path forward that's going to bind everybody together and make the likelihood of being able to work this out higher. He calls the nobility and the priests together, and he says, I want those individuals, the nobility and the landowner, to take an oath that they will do that. And an oath in the ancient world meant that it was a promise with consequences if you didn't do it. And so he says, I want them to pledge before God that they will do this. And then he does something very interesting. It says that he shook out his robes in front of them. And it's like, what does that mean? What do we mean to shake out your robes in front of them? Well, this was a visual depiction of the promise that they had just made and what would happen to them if they didn't follow through on the promise. And so they shook out the robes in front of them was saying, this is what God's going to do with you if you don't follow through on what you say. God's going to shake you out He's going to shake loose your home. He's going to shake loose your wealth. He's going to shake through loose all your prosperity. God's going to strip you bare if you don't follow through on this and you don't do what you say you're going to do. This is often an overlooked part of the healing of community is that there has to be follow through. There has to be a, a, a plan that's made, a promise that's made, and a consequence if you don't take that plan. I need to circle back to something that happened two weeks ago because I talked to you about a plan that we had at my church in Colorado when we, remember, we were developing a piece of land and we found out that there were prairie dogs on that land. And I told you we came up with a very unique solution for that because we brought a company in that literally brought a truck and sucked the prairie dogs out of the ground into the truck and deposited them to a new location. And I had some of you say, Pastor, you just like talked about that and you just moved on. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We have so many questions about that. Some of you even say, did that really happen? It really happened. And I want to make sure you understand what that whole process looks like. So I happened to find a video on YouTube. Here it is. Imagine you are a prairie dog and your landlord wants to evict you.
You could tell it was an old video because it was very pixelated, all right? You knew that. Now you're like, okay, Pastor, like, how, how does that deal with anything right now? You know? I'm not, I'm not tracking with you. Here's what I'm trying to stitch together. There was a plan. Nehemiah says, you got to have a plan. And if you don't have a plan, you won't be able to resolve the problem. In this case, there was a plan. The truck had to come. The truck had to actually do what it says it was going to do, or there was no resolution to what was the problem. And that's true with us. We can have good talk and good ideas, but there has to be a follow-through, or the healing will not happen. All right, fourth And I'll just hit on this one and run, but Nehemiah led by example. And he says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Here's what he's saying. I stepped in and I had the right to take money from you. I had the right to take food from you because in order to be the governor of the land, that was my due, that was my right. But I'm not going to ask anybody to do anything I would not do myself. I've been lending money without interest on that. I've not been taking any land in pledge. I've not even been taking what was rightfully mine as the governor. I'm not doing anything that I wouldn't, that I'm asking you to do that I have not done personally myself. And so, again, what he's done is he's led by example. And Nehemiah has been a great example to the exact thing that he's wanted them to do friendly fire, internal divisions. That's what Nehemiah is addressing because the people of God can't be truly unified unless their differences are addressed. Nehemiah had to stop the friendly fire. And I wonder where the friendly fire is for you today. Is it in your family? Maybe a team at work? Maybe it's some church group that is just experiencing that level of turmoil. Here's what I'm calling you to do today. I'd like you to pause right now. Can you identify where the friendly fire is? Can you ask yourself, do I really understand what's going on? Or do I, maybe I need to ask a few more questions and listen a little bit more carefully because I don't maybe have a full handle on that. Ask yourself the question, maybe I'm contributing to the problem. Maybe I'm one that needs to actually you know, pull the log out of my own eye here. I need to know what my own contribution is to the stirring process here or the, the pot here. And then ask God, what is the steps forward? What do we need to do together as people? And in most instances, again, I'm talking about people of God, those who should naturally have this love and this concern for one another. What is the natural steps that we might take forward in order to bring the unity around uh, this situation. Here's what we can all know right up front. (laughs) Resolving internal difficulties, internal problems, these are never easy issues. They're they're never easy. And in order to do it right, you're going to rely upon God in ways that you probably have never even done that before because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take the work of God in order to bring about the lasting wellness and peace that you long for. But here's why you do it. You do it because of the result of real freedom, of real joy, of the family of God being in unity. Is that important? Is that glorifying to God? 
And is that beneficial to the people of God? Lord, we come to you thankful for every word that you've written in the scriptures. It's manna to us. It's what we need. It's daily bread. And you always put your finger on the situations in our lives where there are real problems. In this case, you're talking about those internal struggles or divisions that we face that just suck the life out of us. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah. And we, Lord, lift our own lives to you this many generations later. The problems still remain to be somewhat the same. And the solution is also the same. We come to you. We humble ourselves before you. And we pledge to do right before you. And I'm praying, Lord, that that would be our hearts today as your people. Come put your hand of healing upon us for any broken bones, any cuts that we have in our, in our lives, in our families, in, in our flesh. We long to be well. We long to be right before you. Hear us now. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. 